welcome to the Book of Mormon Evidence podcast with host Rod Meldrum. This week's Come Follow Me supplemental study is In the Strength of the Lord. Rod's guest this week is Kels Goodman. He's been the owner of the LDS Film Festival, which is held annually in Orm, Utah, born in Virginia and raised in Texas. He graduated from BYU and worked in technical roles for many Hollywood films, such as Touched by an Angel. From there, he became the producer of Handcart and Hidden in the Heartland. He also produced one of YouTube's first viral marketing hits, Will It Blend? Not too long ago, he released The Jets, Making It Real, featuring the Tongan Wolfgram family, who became an American pop sensation. Kels has been in the film business for 25 years and has also produced a number of feature films such as The Latter Day of Elvis Presley, Wayward, and The Last Eagle Scout. His project Hidden in the Heartland is filming in Season 2, and it follows the research providing evidence of the Book of Mormon locations in North America. You can see the whole Hidden in the Heartland first season in BookofMormonEvidenceStreaming.com. You can also see the first few episodes of Season 2. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Come Follow Me program here. <laughs> we've got a, a dear friend of mine, uh, Kells Goodman, and uh, we're going to have to introduce him a little bit more. Actually, we'll just introduce you a little bit more right now. He's okay. he's a filmmaker, and he runs the LDS Film Festival, yeah. and uh, owns that, and then uh, and then he's just been involved with, uh, with, with the whole, you know, LDS film genre, if you will. Yeah, that's right. And uh, he's also the producer of a, uh, of a, of a, TV series that was done um, in two different seasons. There's a season one and season two. I've called Hidden in the Heartland. Uh, so, show so your... on my shirt. <laughs> Hidden in the Heartland, right there. That's right. That's right. So, uh, so this week we're actually going through, this is uh, Mosiah chapter 7 through 10. And we've got a lot of things to really share with you uh, today as far as these, uh, some, of the, some insights into these scriptures. And uh, so we're going to go ahead and kind of get started with that. So a, a few things to kind of start off with here is uh, if you go to uh, chapter 7, and uh, those of you who are using the annotated edition of the Book of Mormon, that starts on page uh, 153, the annotated edition here of the Book of Mormon. And then um, so to start, it off, start off, I want to talk a little bit uh, this time about some geography um, things. So in order to do that, we need to kind of give those of you who may not be already familiar with the Heartland research, essentially it's, it's this when it comes down to geography. So essentially what we're saying is, is that uh, we, we feel like the, the most likely location for Lehi's Landing was somewhere around the Gulf Coast of uh, Florida, maybe around uh, Tallahassee area because of some archaeological things that are there that, uh, that date into the right time frame. And then when, uh, when Laman Lemuel became hostile to Nephi, then he um, and those who would follow him left the land of first inheritance, and they went um, into the land of Nephi. And they go up into the land of Nephi, which is an interesting aspect of it. Then, uh, then, then later on, they uh, leave the land of Nephi. This is about, uh, about 500 years later or so. Um, they go up into, um, this is Alma the, the elder, and he goes up into the land of Helam, and then they ultimately go up to the land of Zarahemla. And so if you take a look at the, um, this is just some of the, kind of the area there um, between the, um, the Gulf Coast, essentially, and the land of Nephi. Now, interestingly enough, the land of Nephi area, this is, uh, this is in, in Mosiah chapter 24, it says, They came to pass that they departed out of the valley, took their journey into the wilderness. This is, this is we're going to get to these chapters here in the next couple of weeks here, but we're not quite there yet. But this is just showing what, what is going to happen here in the future. 
And then, uh, and that what they're doing is they're flashing back. And we're going to talk about the flashbacks here in Mosiah as well in just a couple minutes. All right, so, uh, so basically, so you have the land of Zarahemla, which we believe um, matches with what, uh, what the Lord revealed to Joseph Smith, basically, in section 125, verse 3 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord told Joseph Smith to build up a city on the land opposite of the city of Nauvoo and call it Zarahemla. And that revelation was the first time that, uh, that, the, that the term Zarahemla had ever been used in association with the place across the river from Nauvoo, which is basically Montrose, Iowa. Anyway, so, uh, so we, we feel that that's the, uh, the, you know, the Lord, it's the most simple, <laughs> you know, the Occam's razor answer as far as Zarahemla. And so, if the, so in, in this particular chapter in verse 7, you have the people... Um, it came to pass that King Mosiah, um, they, that, that he uh, had, con- had continual peace for the space of three years. He was desirous to know concerning the people who went up to dwell in the land of Lehi-Nephi, Lehi-Nephi or in the city of Lehi-Nephi. So they were coming from Zarahemla, and they were going back to the original land of Nephi. And it says in, in, this, uh, in these scriptures that they went up. So in uh, verse, let's see, it's verse 1. They said that they, were, they, they wanted to know about the people who went up to dwell in the land of Nephi, uh, Lehi-Nephi. Now, it's interesting they say up. Because yeah. <laughs> up can be on a map, it could be north, but it also could be up in elevation. And we've already talked about this in several different places, so we won't you know, belabor this, this too much here. But basically, you know, for example, in, in Jerusalem, you go up from the Dead Sea up to Jerusalem. There's quite an elevation change, but you're actually going more to the south. So it's actually so. So we know that they that the directions that they would use typically in the up yeah. or down, and, and and it's also interesting that uh, that and I'm going to point out there was one example of of the of, of down being used in relation to the the city of of um, Nephi or the land of Nephi. But whenever, throughout the entire Book of Mormon, brothers and sisters, it's really interesting because throughout the Book of Mormon, anytime, I'm going to go back to the slide here. So the, um, so there's just, just showing this is the Appalachian Mountains here. This is the Blue Ridge Mountains, essentially. And uh, this is just showing some of the, uh, the, the, the travel distances and time frames. But this is the one we want to get to here because this is Mosiah chapter 8. Now in, verse, in, in chapter 7, let's go through this just a little bit further. So... It says, it came to pass that King Mosiah granted 16 of their strong men might go up to the land of Lehi-Nephi to inquire concerning the brethren. So they're going to go up. They're in Zarahemla. By the way, and Zarahemla is north of the land of Nephi area. In several different verses, it talks about the land of Zarahemla is north of the land of Nephi. And, and, I, and, so, and mm-hmm. I have a quick question. Lehi, when you say the land of Lehi-Nephi, is that the same as Nephi, land of Nephi? Is that considered the same thing? Um, well, the, the land of Nephi was originally named by Nephi, obviously, right. and so, uh, and then they had his, his, uh, the people who came after. So I got a question, Rod. I was uh, wondering, you know, we hear about the land of Le- Lehi Nephi, and then we ha- hear about the land of Nephi. Are they one and the same, or what? Or are they different lands? That's a good question. And uh, I'm not sure. It, does, it doesn't give us really definitive answer, I don't think, on that in any particular place. Um, what we do know is that Nephi left the land of first inheritance, which was basically considered you know, 
Lehi, essentially. Yeah. They left that area and then went up into the land of Nephi. And then they uh, were there for about 500, almost 600 years. Um, and then they went into the land of Zarahemla and so forth. So this is, this is written from the perspective of you got people who were in Zarahemla. And now it's been quite a long time. Since they, you know, since they were down there, so they, they, there was this people who left and they went down, you know, uh, Zenith and his people, which we're going to get into in just a couple of minutes. But this is basically um, Mormon is given the, uh, the the narration of what's what's happening here, and probably it would actually make some sense to actually go through and uh, and, and talk about this for just a second. If you go to, let's see here. It's, uh, let's go ahead and just go over here to page 158 in the annotated edition of the Book of Mormon. This is talking about the flashbacks in the Book of Mormon. And the Book of Mosiah is really interesting because in the Book of Mosiah, you have these flashbacks in time. So uh, if you take a look at this, uh, at this when, you, when you see this, basically, I'm just going to be uh, referring to it here. But you have essentially Mosiah, uh, chapters 1 through 8, um, is talking about the time frame of about 130 B.C. and down to about 121 B.C., yep. okay? But then in chapters 9 through 22, it flashes all the way back to 200, 200 B.C. to the yeah. Zenith story and picks up the Zenith, Noah, and Abinadi. Yeah, because they're talking about reading records, and then they end exactly. up reading those records. Exactly, but then, so. then that kind of ends up in, verse, in, in chapter 22 at, at, again, 121 B.C., and then chapters 23 and 24 focus primarily on Alma the Elder. Okay, and that's basically from 145 B.C. down to 120 B.C. And then the last chapters, 25 through 29, actually deal with what happens after that. So 120 B.C. and picks up you know, Messiah the second and so forth and down to That's a good map. BC. Yeah, that's a good time map to, to yeah. be able to have because that can get confusing if you don't have – some kind of guide as to yeah. what they're doing. That's why in the annotated Book of Mormon, we actually have in the beginning of verse of, of uh, chapter nine, we have this. This tells us that this is the first flashback and says this is now going back to 200 BC. What's fascinating though is that uh, we, and we and we talked about this in one of the other podcasts. But if you go to the be- very beginning of Mosiah, a lot of people don't realize that the entire Book of Mosiah is a chiastic, chiastic structure. It's a chiasm, which means the entire book. Goes from, from from you know basically from concept A all the way down to concept you know A B C D all the way down to O, and then it repeats O and goes all the way back to concept A prime. Hmm. So there's a whole this whole thing the entire book is a is a chiasm and this is what I think is just fascinating. So the chiastic structure is basically going you know boom 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 and it's repeating itself, but at the same time. Mormon is basically putting this book together, bridging this record together from their history, and he's also doing these flashbacks in time, but he keeps the chiastic structure intact. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. That's good writing. How did he? Yeah. yeah, how did he keep track of all this stuff? Right. Well, and interesting enough, if Joseph Smith was making all this stuff up, going back to verse to chapter seven here. Um, it's interesting because every single instance, whenever they talk about going towards the land of Nephi, they go up into the land of Nephi. But it's just the opposite with Zarahemla. Now, there's there's one there's one exception. I'm going to get into that in just a, just a couple of minutes here, because that's actually in verse six. 
but the uh, but the the, the on the, in contrast to that, whenever they're going towards Zarahemla, they go down into the land of Zarahemla. Whenever they leave Zarahemla, they go up out of the land of Zarahemla. But whenever they leave the land of Nephi, they go down out of the land of Nephi. <laughs> so so somehow, clearly this is an elevation yeah, change. Yeah, that's right. And this has been the big thing. It's been a, a, a very difficult thing for people who have been studying the geography stuff to try to comprehend because... Uh, it talks about the land of Nephi is higher in elevation than the land of Zarahemla, but yet we're proposing that the Mississippi River, which goes past Zarahemla at Nauvoo mm-hmm. and continues on south, that it's going past the land of Nephi. Well, if the land of Zarahemla is lower, the land of Nephi is higher, rivers don't run uphill. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how do you reconcile the land of Nephi being south and then, and then the river, and the river also flowing south. If the land of Nephi is higher in elevation than Zarahemla, yeah, and it's actually a fairly easy explanation <coughs> once you actually see the true, you know, the real geography and how this actually works. So that if we go on just a little bit more here, um, so they go up to the land of Lehi, Nephi, Lehi. I don't know if that kind of answered the question. Mm-hmm. My my thought is that the people of Zarahemla at that point in time looked at everything that they had that their people had previously come from, and this is 500 years later, so this is you know, two and a half times as old as the United States is, has been a nation. Yeah, <laughs> okay? That's right. So it's been a long time, right? And they're going, you know, we want to go back to this land of our forefathers, the land of both Nephi and possibly Lehi, but it's been so long, they, maybe they just don't remember exactly where it's at. So they say, well, they just, well, they'll just call it both. I don't know. That, that's a total speculation, but maybe that's a... A possibility. Came to pass that on the morrow they started to go up. Now the interesting thing about this in, in verse 4 says, And now they knew not the course that they should travel in the wilderness to go up to the land of Nephi, to Lehi-Nephi. Therefore they wandered many days in the wilderness, even 40 days. Now they were wandering, which means that they probably were on foot. Yeah. They weren't taking the rivers, which is probably why they got messed up because yeah, so many lost that's right because the rivers were their primary superhighways and now they were trying to go cross country and it's a lot harder because this whole area is just covered with trees at least today it is and probably was back then so they wandered for 40 days and so forth and then they uh, and they and they came to it a, a hill which was north of the land of shilom and there they pitched their tents and ammon took three of his brethren malachi helam and him and they went down into the land of nephi so which is it <laughs> Twice, about three times they say they were going up from Zarahemla to the land of Nephi and then here in verse 6 they said they went down into the land of Nephi Yeah. so did Joseph Smith just get this wrong Yeah. was he just kind of got confused and forgot about this particular one to make sure it was you know constantly up when you go to Nephi and the answer is is we'll actually get to that in just a, in just a second well actually let's just go ahead and talk about it right now the answer to that actually comes to in, in verse 16 of uh, chapter 7 says, And now King Limhi commanded his guards that they should no more bind Ammon nor his brethren, but cause that they should go to the hill, which was north of Shilom, and bring their brethren into the city. That doesn't sound like they were making a long journey. That sounds like, yeah. hey, go get, go get your guys off the hill. And if they were on a hill above the city, they would have to come down to come from into the hill. city. Yeah, from the hill. That's right. So this is why this is this is how even though they constantly say that from the land of Zarahemla to the land of you know Lehi Nephi mm-hmm. it was up, there's all of a sudden this one down 
because they were just coming down off of a hill. In other words, you have a, a scale situation here. The scale is generally up from Zarahemla to the land of Nephi. But you have the local scale, which is basically the hill, and then they come down off of the hill into the city. So it's, it's But without the geography, it doesn't make much sense. Now, the other thing is, is if you take a look back here at, the, at, this, at this, um, the slide here, um, <coughs> so this is what they're talking about here in Mosiah. It says, And the king said, I caused that 43 of my people should take a journey to the wilderness, that there they might find the land of Zarahemla. So this was their goal. They wanted to find the land of Zarahemla. Okay, that was their that was their the, the point of them going, and uh, and then in verse eight it says that they, uh, they 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 were lost in the wilderness for the space of many days. Yet they were diligent. They found not the land of Zarahemla, but they returned to this land, having traveled in a land among many waters. Okay, that's right. So this is so the, so somehow they were headed for Zarahemla. They got mixed up and lost at some point, and then they couldn't find it. And then they traveled in this land, um, and uh, and they got you know kind of lost. Now that's going to be just a, a little bit. Uh, let me see here where we're at here. If we can find this there. Okay, so so at this point they're they're talking about the uh, the, the the search party goes. They come down into the into the city. They uh, or the, the the area there, and they get and they get arrested. <laughs> and they they're yeah. brought before the king, basically. King Limhi, and he is the son of King Noah, who was the son of Zenith. Okay, and Zenith was the guy that came a couple, you know, basically like two generations ago yeah. down here to, to find this land. Okay, so he says, um, he says, I am Ammon, I'm a descendant of Zarahemla. This is verse 13. I've come up out of the land of Zarahemla to inquire concerning our brethren from whom Zenith brought up out of that land. So when again, when they leave Zarahemla, they go up out of Zarahemla. But when they go to the land of Nephi, they go up into the land of Nephi. Okay, so in Mosiah uh, chapter 8 here, we're talking about in verse 7, it says, And the king said unto him, Being grieved for the afflictions of my people, I caused that 43 of my people should take a journey into the wilderness, that thereby they might find the land of Zarahemla. So they were looking for the land of Zarahemla. They might appeal to the brethren to deliver us out of bondage, and they were lost in the wilderness for a space of many days. And they were diligent, and they found not the land of Zarahemla, but they returned to this land. I find this interesting. If you've ever been seriously lost, one of the problems is it's getting back. You know? oh, yeah, it's terrible. So, so if, if you're totally lost, how do you get back? They didn't have little color ties that they could tie in. <laughs> you know, That's right. Or their drone Bend footage. Over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Um, but, but this is really fascinating because this one, we think, was probably done by boat. By you know maybe canoe or whatever, and the reason why is because they're coming from the land of Nephi, they're going to the land of Zarahemla, they're going from a higher elevation down to a lower elevation, and they probably try to use the rivers as much as possible for that. They know that Zarahemla basically, if 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 you leave basically the Chattanooga, Tennessee area, which was where we we propose is the land of of Nephi, if you leave that area, you have the Tennessee River. You can see on this uh, on this um, image here from the land of Nephi, there's the Tennessee River actually runs to the north, out of that area, and then it comes all the way up until it gets up to the Ohio River, and then from the Ohio River to get if you were going to go to basically Nauvoo or Zarahemla, 
you'd have to make a you'd have to get on the Ohio River, come down just a little bit further until you get to the Mississippi River, and then you'd have to basically go up the Mississippi River. But it's not a lot of elevation change. It's more like a lake than it is a river, in, in, yeah. in, except for in different seasons of the year. So they would have to go then up that direction to get to you know up the river to get to Zarahemla. Um, but the overall lay of the land is Nephi, you know, the land of Nephi is higher. But so so that what they have to do from Chattanooga, they say, okay, so when you go get on the river, go down until you get to another another really big river, and then make a left hand turn there, and then make a right hand turn at the next really really big river, <laughs> okay, and follow that up there. Well, if they happen to get to the wrong river, and there's a lot of these rivers are, are very big. If they instead made a right-hand turn when they got to the Ohio River instead of a left-hand turn, now they would follow the the Ohio River. They would still be going north, as you can see in this uh, in this here. Instead of going north and west, they'd be going north and east. And where did they end up? They ended up in uh, near Camorra. That's right, a land of, a land so. of many waters. He said he traveled in a land of many waters. There were several things about this. In fact, there's ten different observations made about this particular land. So the first one is they 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 now they they didn't find Zarahemla. So number one, yep. they went so far they knew they had gone past where Zarahemla should have been, and there was no Zarahemla. Well, and this is also evidence that to go from Nephi to Zarahemla had to be a northerly direction mm-hmm. because they were going north, and and we also know that the Jaredites, uh, when you go to the very first page of of Ether. That they these were the people of the northern countries, yeah. and because they were in the northern countries, and Rama was in the northern countries, they were heading. They had to be going north. So yeah. either way, so. exactly. In fact, it says that the uh, Jaredites were brought into the land northward, and Lehi and his family were brought into the land southward. That's right. So. And that's and so so yeah. So we know that that's the relationship of the north and south thing. So they went to the land. They got to the land, not to the land of Nephi, or excuse me, to the land of Zarahemla. And they returned back to the land, so that's the, another thing. They found their way back, so they must not have had a problem getting back. Yeah. Um, they traveled in a land of many waters, okay, and uh, and of course we have the Great Lakes and all yep. these and all kinds of rivers and so the forth. Finger Lakes, area. yeah, I mean tons of waters. Mm-hmm. And they discovered a land which was covered with the bones of men and beasts. Okay, so they had the, the land covered with with uh, bones and so forth. There was the ruins of buildings of every kind. And they discovered a land which had been people with the people who were as numerous as the hosts of Israel. And for a testimony that these things are true, they have brought 24 plates. So yeah. whose plates are these? These are, these are the plates of Ether, of the Jaredites. Yeah. So the history of the Jaredites, which of course included the time of Adam up to their time, which would have been not long after Noah. And, uh, and so it's that little history, which would be awesome to have. And here's what's interesting about this, that little history yeah. is, is, you know, the Bible currently that we receive today, that we read, that history actually came from Moses's revelation. So the first uh, five books of, of the Bible are actually from Moses uh, writing those. Those are the five books of Moses. And so I would be amazed to see what that, right? This is before Moses even existed. You know, when they got that, those set of plate, when they started making that history, you know, they did, the Jaredites did not know Moses at all. He didn't yeah. even exist when they came to America. So they came with some history of Adam 
tell tell the the great tower. tower. Yeah, so oh, that's little, bound yeah. to be some amazing material. But beyond that, <clears throat> is their histories of ether? You know, so uh, yeah. all on twenty four plates, which is amazing. And we know that those plates were probably the Adamic language because their language did not get confounded. And from our understanding, yeah. for every word. Of from the Adamic language, you could say many words, you know, and what would be translated today. Possibly so you two could, or three sentences worth. Yeah, of, of you English, can fit yeah. it's such a pure language. You could fit so much into well, into just a few characters. So yeah. anyway, that's that's fascinating. Yep, and it says it says that they were of pure gold, and they also had breastplates, and yep. they were big, they were large, and they were also made out of brass and copper. And we could go into the brass and copper stuff and, and a little bit more, but basically we know that copper was available up in the uh, Great Lakes area, which is where the Jaredites were primarily located. Oh, yeah. To this research. Yep, very big. And also they mentioned brass instead of, and, and, you know, that they were made out of brass instead of bronze, which is another interesting aspect of it because bronze is made of a, a, the combination of copper and tin, but there's hardly any tin here in North America. So they didn't have tin to work with. If they were going to, when they were smelting these two metals together and so forth, but there is zinc. Yeah. And they talk about ziff as being in in the metals category as far yeah. as you know when they when they're doing this. So they had copper and ziff or zinc, and basically that's why they made brass here in the old world. It was primarily bronze. And he says, and they were perfectly sound. And again, they have brought swords, and the hilts thereof have perished, which means they're probably made out of. Wood. Yeah. But listen to this. It says, and the blades thereof were cankered with rust. What kind of things rust? Does wood rust? No. no. Wood disappears. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the one with the little digits on the side of it. <laughs> that's right. <Sorry>. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, you know, it's interesting because that means that the Jaredites had metal smelting. They had some kind of steel or iron which is exactly what they say. Yeah. It says so. In fact, they talked yeah. about that one war that they had uh, in, in during the Jaredite time where where they actually oh uh, now the general's name leaves me, but but they when they started to have breakoffs in the Jaredite time frame, one set took off to one city and did a and started building swords and came back and attacked. Yeah. So they had some smelting going on and we know, I mean, Ohio uh, is and filled smelters. with with smelting, you know, in Ohio, which is William Connor shows us the the smelting. Him, he, William Connor himself has found yeah. thirty uh, stoves and and even a few of them so still the, warm. The big ovens, the, the, the ovens, smelting ovens that yeah. they were able to, you know, microwaves. No, just kidding. But places where they're <laughs> able to whatever yeah. you call them, yeah. but they make them and 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 that wonderful you know artifact that's set up in uh, Palmyra. Uh, that yeah. he found, you yeah. know, with the axe still inside the mold. So you know yes. that they were doing amazing. Yeah. So it existed. It's yeah. it wasn't missing by any means. See, that's the one thing that's been really hard because in Central America, the Mayan civilization, they weren't doing any smelting of any metals till about eight or nine hundred AD. Mm-hmm. But here we have the Book of Mormon saying that the Jaredites were smelting way back. Yeah, thousands. the Nephites were smelting around 550 BC and up until the time of Christ at least. Yeah, and Smelting is an interesting process because when you smelt, it leaves slag, and 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 slag doesn't go away over time. Yeah, it's that green goo that comes out and, it's right. and sticks around, and that's the material that William yeah. Connor 
would talk yeah. about that he found, and he has some, he has this beautiful collection in his house of the green goo. He's yeah. so proud of that green goo, <laughs> but it's just that's history. That's that's the history that was there, the leftovers. And he found so, it in the mounds yeah. of these Hopewell Mound Builder people, who we are saying are the are the Nephites. So we literally found the smelted the the, the evidence of smelting in these mounds right there. Yeah. And uh, that's another interesting thing, though. In Central America, they've never found any steel or any kind of metal swords. And so what they say is, well, what they really meant by sword was one of these clubs with its obsidian blades in it. Yeah. And that's what they must have been using, right? Yeah. Problem is, how does that rust? Yeah, that's right. How does, how does obsidian rock and piece of wood, how does that rust? It yeah. can't rust. It's not metal. That's so right, yeah. uh, so that's, that's a complete, you know, there's no way that these macahitos, they're called down in Central America, could have been considered to be the swords of the Jaredites because, because they, they couldn't rust. There's no possibility. So there's a nice collection here of evidence that that is usually often used against uh, Camorra, uh, against the, the New York Camorra, mm-hmm. is that these things are not there. But I, I will tell you right now that a lot of those things exist. In fact, if you watch... Season two, yes. Hidden in the Heartland. Absolutely. You know, uh, that uh, we do a wonderful episode called uh, um, The Two Hill Camorra Theory. And in that, we give a case for what is in New York. If there's nothing in New York, what is there? And there are many evidences of what is in New York. We know the quotes from uh, the governor that came around long before Joseph Smith even prayed or said any, or even was born. Uh, or maybe he was yeah. a child, but but uh, you know Governor uh, Clinton of New DeWitt, York, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, Dewitt Clinton yeah. Had, would say he himself said that there was almost matching what they said here, where he said yeah. there was a civilization here in New York, vastly large, large, larger than we think it was, yeah. and and then there are so many other examples that uh, Willard Bean, the fighting preacher. Would 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 write that you don't hear about in the Fighting Preacher movie, but you'll you'll read in his movie in his writings, yep. you know of the of his wonderful book that he wrote about Rama Kimura, and uh, and he and he quotes, you know uh, what's his name Father Bosley, uh, who would would just find iron right there in Palmyra. Just he said he had so much iron that he just found out of the ground that he never even had to go buy any or make any because it was all right there. And then he could refashion it and use yeah. it for his own tools, yeah. you know, and, and that's he was, in, he was an ironsmith, I think, or whatever. Yeah. yeah he, he, he may have. Yeah. Blacksmith. Yeah. He's yeah. so he, he had the materials right there to be able to do that stuff. He didn't, he just pulled it right out of the ground. So this to say there is nothing in New York is sad because it's not true. It's so not true. And yeah. so it, what's interesting about this is at the time that these guys found their ruins. The the uh, the Jaredites weren't long gone yet. Right. There were there was that's why their swords would be there, but their hilts would not, because their hilts would have gone away, but their swords would still be in existence. Because we're talking only what a hundred years, yeah. if that. Yeah. You know that the, the when Coriantumr you know killed off and that all happened. Shiz so and, yeah, yeah, they they all just kicked the bucket and killed each other, and that wasn't very long before this time when they found them all. But and there, what I mean, and there was nobody long. there was nobody to bury them, so they yeah. left on the surface. So their bodies were pretty much gone, and they, but they still was there still was some bones apparently left, and they found these breastplates made out of copper and brass, yeah. which would have 
not you know um, decompose at this point. Now either. I think what happens is, and that's another reason why a lot of people are concerned about the Camorra, uh, the New York Camorra, is because yeah. they found bones and they found swords and they found that. A lot of people who are confused about the the, the New York Camorra think that that we should be finding the same types of stuff yeah. around the Hill Camorra um, as if as if all that stuff is still going to be there. <laughs> and it's not going to yeah. be there because this, this time frame was very short compared to the end of the Nephite uh, uh, group and the Nephite Lamanite battles and then today. So you're not going to, oops, sorry. You're not going to find anything in New York, uh, in and around. There is stuff to find, but you're not going to find anything of mass like they did here because it wasn't as recent. Yeah. And so anyway, so I just thought I'd throw that in as far as the defense of Camorra. Uh, being where it is right there in New York, in Palmyra. Yeah, in fact, uh, it, 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 interesting because you have and you have an episode in, in yep. season two of this talking about the two Camorra theory. Yeah. Um, just just briefly for those who may not be aware of the two Camorra theory, what what is the what is this two Camorra theory? Well, two Camorra theory is that uh, basically, in a nutshell, um, there's another Hill Camorra, and and it's somewhere down in Central America because Hill Camorra has to be, and this is the the confliction that everybody seems to have is is Hill Camorra has to be near all the other cities. There's this notion that we all think that all the battles happened and all the livelihood in the cities were in Central America and Moroni just somehow wandered, 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 and then planted the, you know, the the plates up in a hill, a random hill somewhere up in New York. But that, that's not true because everything had to be near. The, the hill actually has to be near. Where and, they lived. Where they yeah. lived. And, yeah. and BYU, uh, you know, the, our researchers at BYU, where we get our information in Central America, actually agree with that notion. They agree with the idea that Camorra has to be near the rest of the cities. People went to Camorra and back. And in so, just a few months' time, not not a couple of years. Not time. a couple of yeah. years, yeah. yeah. And so and so so the two so in order to justify Central America being where it all happened, and Camorra in New York has to be up there. There has to be a second hill. Yeah. And so the story is created, you know, 100 years after Joseph Smith died or, or, or got the, uh, re created the Book of Mormon, they created a story that, that, uh, that Moroni buried the plates. Then when everybody died and everything was over, Moroni unburied the plates huffed them all the way up to New York, and then buried them up there. There's no evidence of that. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever said that. The church doesn't support that. The church doesn't say that. But it's one of those things, that's the two-hill Camorra theory. Yeah. In fact, I, think, so, I think there's an awful lot of members of the church who don't even realize that it, by accepting the Central America theory, theory of the Book of Mormon, basically, or geography of the Book of Mormon, you also are accepting the idea that the Hill Camorra in New York isn't the real Hill Camorra. Correct. The real Hill Camorra is someplace down in Central America, just like you were talking about, and the hill up here is just symbolic. Yeah, and for me, for yeah. me, as as somebody who's kind of a pseudo re, re, researcher, I don't, I, I'm not, I just research as much as I need to to get my episodes done. Uh, but I, the Hill Camorra is probably the single most important, has to be locked in factor when it comes to Book of Mormon geography, yeah. because it's the one place that the Church agrees. That they built a monument, that they said this is where the plates were. Oh, the visitor center. The visitor center <laughs> and everything. Yeah, they they every that's the one place that we 
should not be disagreeing on where it is, but we do. Mm -hmm. And that's sad because it's the only place that everybody should be in lockstep and in the church should know because yeah. that's where Joseph Smith said it was. Yeah. So and, and actually in the in the geography that we're talking about here, the Heartland geography, if we can go uh, back for just a second back to the uh, to the image there, um, you can actually see how this really does work in the geography. Yeah. If you have the people who are in the land of Nephi around Tennessee, they go down the Tennessee. They, they're up higher, they go down the Tennessee River, then they hit the Ohio River. Now they know that at some point in the time they're going to have to go up the river a little bit. Well, instead they go up the Ohio River, they follow that up into that into the area of the Great Lakes there. They continue on up there. I mean, they they, they said it was uh, many days, so we don't know how long that was, but it could have been even several months. Then they find where the Jaredites basically had annihilated themselves, and we know that was at the Hill Cumorah. And if we believe that the Hill Cumorah is the one up in New York, then that's they made it all the way up into New York, which you can actually see in this uh, in this image up by uh, Lake Ontario. Essentially, is just south of Lake Ontario is where Hill Cumorah is located. And they, but they were lost. They never found Zarahemla, but they did find all of this other stuff: these buildings and all these bones and the head plates and breast plates and so forth. Clearly, there was a huge, huge, you know, battle up there. But they didn't seem to have any problem finding their way back. Yeah. Why? I think the reason why is GPS. Because <laughs> that's <Yes>. GPS, <laughs> God positioning system. <laughs> that's so, right. So anyway, so so basically, they, they they go from if they if they leave the land of Zarahemla and they and they follow down along the southern the southern edge of uh, Lake um, Erie, then they go into river systems that basically dump all, all of those rivers through that whole area dump into the Ohio River. Then they just follow the Ohio River down until they find the, the, the confluence of the Ohio and the Tennessee River. And then they basically paddle their canoes upstream in the Tennessee River until they get back to the land of Nephi. It's really easy to find their way back, but someplace they, they took a wrong turn and they missed the, the turn that takes them over to the Mississippi River, which would take them up to Zarahemla instead. Yeah. A turn that was meant to happen. Yeah, and 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 it makes perfect sense, and it and it make, and it matches everything in the Book of Mormon here. It was a land of many waters, and it was covered with the bones and so forth, and all of that makes sense in the in in this in this research. Yep. So, uh, in fact, here in in Helaman, it verifies again. It went from Zarahemla. They left. They went forth to the land northward to inherit the land. It did travel it to an exceedingly great distance, in so much that they came to large bodies of water and many rivers. Yep. So what large bodies of water up are up in that area? <laughs> oh, I think there's plenty. And in fact, there's the big, big one. I mean, there's the Niagara Falls, and then there's yeah. the Finger Lakes, and then there's the uh, Great Lakes. And yeah. there's so much water up there, you know, coming out of their ears. Yep. To say that it's, there's there's no rivers or anything is just silly. Yeah. But I know that's one of the arguments that's used yeah. for it to not be in uh, Palmyra, and that should be stripped away. That should yeah. not even be an issue. There are all kinds of large bodies of water up there that uh, that exceed anything that is in Central America by by orders of magnitude. I mean, huge. Yeah. So again, just just to finish up here with the up and down directions. So the land of Nephi. This this is this is where people get really confused as far as the land of Nephi is in, is up in elevation. Land of Zarahemla is, is south of there. The Mississippi River goes past the land of Zarahemla. Um, and then comes down to around the land of Nephi. But it doesn't necessarily go up into the land of Nephi. The river doesn't. It basically, the Mississippi River comes down and joins 
essentially the Tennessee and the Ohio rivers as they as they can join right just a, just a few miles before it dumps into the Mississippi River. And now all of a sudden it all makes perfect sense. The river does flow south. See, people have said that, in fact, originally, if you looked up in the, uh, the index of the triple combination and you looked up the word Sidon, it says, most prominent river in Nephite territory runs north to a sea. I actually wrote a paper about this and said, where in the Book of Mormon does it say anything about the Mississippi River, or I should say the River Sidon, flowing to the north? It never says it. It says it has east and west banks, but it never says the direction of flow of the river. Interesting. Wow. Um, and so you have to kind of extrapolate uh, which direction it goes. And people say, well, land of Nephi is higher, land of Zarahemla is lower, so it must be a north-flowing river. In this particular case, though, the Mississippi River doesn't flow uphill, but it does flow south, and it goes past the land of Nephi, which is higher in elevation because it goes around it. <laughs> so when you, when you actually have a, a real geography that you can place it in, it makes perfect sense. <coughs> Forgive me. So a couple, a couple of things also before we get too far along. You mentioned about the the hill Cumorah. Yeah. This is uh, you know you got the the season in the, or the hidden in the heartland season two. Yeah. But also, this is a, a DVD that uh, was produced because I was asked to go and speak to the um, hill Cumorah pageant cast members about a couple of years ago. Yeah. There's some guy who was teaching all the cast members that the hill that you're doing the pageant on. Well, that's not really the real Hill Cumorah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a symbolic hill, and it really has nothing to do with the Book of Mormon other than that Moroni brought the plates all the way up from Central America and buried them there on the side of the hill. Yeah. And uh, so I actually had a, a, a guy, the guy that actually played Mormon in the, in the, uh, in the pageant cast, he, he came and he was talking to me. We were having a discussion there in the, uh, the bookstore there by the Grandin Press, the, uh, and let the Latter-day Harvest bookstore. Anyway, and... And I said, well, do you know about this from Oliver Cowdery, you know, letter seven and all these kind of things? And I started telling him about, well, you know, one of the problems that we have with this Hill Camorra thing is that there are unrealistic expectations. Like, for example, people say, well, if the, if the final battles of the Jaredites and the Nephites happen at the Hill Camorra here, where's all the bones? Just like you were saying. Yeah, that's right. Where's all the swords? Where's all the, the armor? You know, yeah. and, uh, and 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 because it's it's like it's not there, and so I started to go through and 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 actually explain what is realistic. It's not realistic to expect bones. Yeah, for it's not. That's right. In fact, in in hidden in the heartland, we kind of go into. I think we talked about this before a little bit about. Uh, we used an example of the Civil War, and the biggest battle was the Battle uh, of Antietam. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's up in uh, it's either it's in Maryland or New Hampshire somewhere up there where it's twenty two thousand dead in one day, you know, during the Civil War, which is enormous. Yeah. And uh, and that's only a hundred and sixty years ago, and yet you can't find any not, almost yeah. nothing there except for what was preserved. It's now this beautiful park. They've picked over and they've taken everything, and there's no bones laying there, and and so and so be, and that's 160 years ago. You're talking 1600 years ago, and you expect yeah. to find anything, and you should not expect to find that. Should just cancel out on your mind. Yeah, that's that's part of that's part of why the Hill Cumorah is not an archaeological find. The Hill Cumorah is a spiritual find. It's what a prophet of God said is where it is. It's not. A, a hill 
that archaeologists say, well, this is the hill. It's a yeah. hill that Joseph Smith said. So you have to believe Joseph Smith uh, and where it is. Yeah. And if you if you go if you don't go off of that, you're going to be blinded because the hill is not meant to be an archaeological find. It's meant, even though there is some things that have been found around that hill and it's cool and it's awesome, but, but now it's totally picked over. You're not going to find anything. It's a spiritual hill, not something you find because archaeology, archaeology told you so, but it's because Joseph Smith told you so. And the other thing is, for example, we talked about the swords. Yeah. Well, if in a hundred years or so, the swords were already cankered with rust, what are the swords going to look like after 2,000 years? Exactly, yeah. Well, they're not going to even be there. They're going to be basically a a red stain in the ground from just the rust from the swords. So nobody would expect to find swords. So that blows that one out of the waters where anti-Mormons say, well, where's all the swords? Um, Where's all the bones? Well, bones will actually be preserved if they're buried. If they're buried. Well, who was burying the Nephites? Yeah. The Lamites didn't care. They were left. In fact, the Book of Mormon specifically says they were left to return and molar, molar, and to return to Mother Earth. It says they were just left on the ground. And so I actually gave the example: if a cow was to wander off here and and around Palmyra and die, how long would it be before it's no longer visible on the surface? Yeah, probably four or five, maybe six years. I mean, some of the bones might stick around for five or six years, but you got freezing and thawing cycles. You've got maggots and so forth that eat the flesh and so forth. You have maybe even you know, dogs and wolves and or coyotes or whatever that eat the the, the meat off the bones after it, after it dies and so forth. That in other words, doesn't 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 take long for biological and chemical action to destroy the yeah. flashy parts, and then you just have the bones left. Even even cement doesn't last that long. Exactly, which is interesting. There's only one time the Book of Mormon talks really about cement. Yeah. The rest of the time, it talks about wood, and yeah. none of that. I mean, the cement in my in the front of my house. Is, is breaking apart, and it's not sixteen hundred years, and it's like already breaking old, apart. Yeah. It's already I already have apart. to get it repaired. So that's right. That's exactly right. So yeah. So there's so some things are realistic, and some yeah. things are not realistic. Right. And that's what this 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 DVD is about: the Hill Cumorah verifications and realistic archaeological expectations. Because nobody's going in your right mind. Nobody's going to expect to see bones. Nobody's going to expect to find swords. Now, some people say, well, what about the copper breastplates? Copper breastplates would last through, through time. But then I, then I reminded them, in that final battle, which were there more of, Nephites or Lamanites? Yeah. Way more Lamanites, probably three or four to one. Yeah. And if you have a huge army of Lamanites that outnumber the Nephites and all the Nephites are now laying there dead, what's the chances that a Lamanite... A uh, warrior is going to say, you know what, that guy, he's about my same size. Look at that beautiful armor he's got. Yeah, there. They're his stuff is going to get so picked over. I he's going to take it. It is. I mean, and what's interesting is there actually are museums, uh, especially the the um, the Hopewell Museum, the yeah. one that we visited, yeah. uh, has some armor there. There actually is armor in existence. Yeah. But after time, you know, when DeSoto came. When when uh, um, they say that DeSoto brought disease and killed millions of natives, well, there were okay. Then that means there were millions of natives that roamed the area to pick over. Yeah. So to to say that that while the Lamanites and the Nephites killed each other and there's death and destruction, you know, 
There were other people that roamed for a long time, for many years, and probably went up there and picked it and didn't care, didn't preserve because they weren't into preserving. They were into surviving. You know, to think that they're going to act like we act whenever we see a Native American site is ludicrous. You can't do that. You can't sit there and say, well, how come they didn't preserve them? (laughs) Why didn't they put them in their museum? Because they didn't care. They were all caring about surviving. And so we can't give them the same expectation. But but there are some things, though, that we should probably expect to find. If you have a massive battle between ancient cultures like the Jaredites and the Nephites, there's going to be some things there that would be actually in, in such great numbers that they're not going to be able to pick them all over. And what is that? Arrowheads. arrowheads. You know it. So. Arrowheads. And arrowheads have been found by the, by the hundreds of thousands. In fact, the, uh, the, the very first uh, uh, settlers that came into that, that western New York area, uh, this is from some of the fir- earliest books on the history of western New York, and they actually talk about that you couldn't hardly even walk on the ground without stepping on the arrowheads. They were just everywhere. And every, everybody who's ever had any land back in Palmyra have collections. And, and in fact, people who grew up there said that there were so many arrowheads that the kids just used them like marbles and stuff because they were just everywhere. Yeah, University of Buffalo uh, up there in New York, they, you know, we hear and there are pictures of millions of arrowheads that they have yeah. collected along with other artifacts as well. But the, yeah, the arrowhead is the one thing that's, you can, you can still yeah. really find them if you really look hard enough. Yeah, two but, years uh, ago, there was an arrowhead found right on the Hill Cumora. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So that's the one thing that you should find. And guess what? We do. In fact, they, they had, when the first, the, the first visitor center that they had a couple of barrels out there and basically the locals could come and just unload to get rid of their arrowheads and just put them in these barrels and the members of the church would come in as a souvenir they could take an arrowhead back with them and they did this by the tens of thousands over years they had those barrels always loaded up with with arrowheads from the 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 area out there yeah so that's what we expect to find that's when that's what we talk about in this is actually it's a really uh you know fun video we actually talk about the uh, the, the 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 defensive walls that we have you and I have actually gone yeah. on and, and and looked at these defensive walls and so forth there they were rudely thrown up in other words they were basically they didn't have time to make them all nice and neat and pretty they just quickly just threw up defensive structures all around all around the hill Camorra and we've and we've been out there and seen it it's amazing all right we need to keep going here though um so <coughs> forgive me um, okay, verse 13. Now, Kells, yep. you had some things you wanted to talk about with this, and that's, that oh, this, yeah. is, uh, this is now this Ammon. This is kind of fascinating. Yeah, Ammon uh, uh, is, you know, the, the king is saying, you know, they found these records, and uh, and there's, and the king is like, well, how are we going to read them? Because they're in a language they don't understand. Obviously, they're not Egyptian. <laughs> Obviously, they're not Hebrew, because they could have been able to read it. Mm-hmm. And Ammon's like, well, hey, I know somebody, and his name is Mosiah. And this guy has the power to be able to translate. And what he did was he was able to uh, say, well, how does he translate? And he brings up the Urim and Thummim. Now, I haven't done a lot of uh, research on the Urim and Thummim. I know it's not just a Mormon thing. There's actually Jews that talk about the Urim and Thummim. And even in the uh, Bible, uh, the Urim and Thummim in the early days of Moses. But, um, you know, so I threw out the question as to, and again, I don't have the answer, so I'm going to throw out the question of how did Mosiah get his Urim and Thummim, and where did he get it from? Because I would I would be very curious. Uh, there have been some people that have actually theorized that there's actually more than one Urim and Thummim 
that have been around. But Moses, I know, had had a Urim and Thummim. So how they got from Moses to Mosiah, if it's the same one. If it's not, uh, then I'm. I, it would be very fascinating to find out more about about the history because the Yerman Thummim we know is something that you can't just use. Anybody just can't be used. You actually have to have that that Spiritual power. Gift, yeah. You know that gift that's given by God. Very very select select few people in the world have been able to even ever use the Yerman Thummim, and so. How did how did he get it? And so that would be a fascinating question to study sometime where Mosiah actually got that. Was there anybody else that received the Yerman Thummim during this time of uh, of uh, of the Book of Mormon that you know of, Ron? Um, I'm just trying to think of the, basically you have the Yerman Thummim, basically the interpreters they're calling it here. In this, yeah, in, they in, call in, them interpreters. In, in verse Correct. 13 says that they are that they they can look and translate all records that are of ancient date and it is a gift from God so who made who, who basically you know got them these interpreters yeah it was the Lord basically it was God basically yeah. and, he, and these things are called interpreters it says that nobody can look in them except they be commanded and except unless they do what they shouldn't look for what they shouldn't look for and then they get yeah, because these are the, these are the same interpreters <laughs> that that Joseph Smith eventually received, correct? Or are these the exact same? Well, ones? that's just it. So God made interpreters for the purpose of of these of, of making these translations. Yeah, that's right. And then God makes sure that the Jaredites they have they have interpreters. Yeah, and then the Nephites have these interpreters, and then somehow. God makes sure that they get down to Mormon and then to Moroni. So Moroni actually makes sure that these things are in the box for what purpose? Yeah. What to, with the, with the, to the, go the where box. to go with the plates wherever they go, wherever wherever the history would go. It would seem like it would be for the very purpose of being able to translate. You know right. what what those plates. So that's why they have to be together. They always have right. to be. It's like a computer and a monitor. You know, sometimes you you can have the computer tower, but if you don't have the monitor to read it, how good you is know, it? What, yeah. how, what good is it? Yeah. yeah. So exactly. So they, so basically, they had the uh, the the um, interpreters there with the plates to make sure that that Joseph would have the instrument that God prepared centuries ago. Yeah. To be able to do the translation. And that's why uh, the, I got to I got to give a little shout out here to uh, the Stoddards. Basically, <laughs> there's a, a, a book. Uh, in fact, there's two books now, and I want to I want to share this. One of them is called Searstone versus Urim and Thummim. Um, Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, and the Lord consistently talked about that the translation of the Book of Mormon from the gold plates to the Book of Mormon happened through the gift and power of God. And using the Urim and Thummim. Not once did the Lord, Joseph Smith, or Oliver Cowdery, the ones who were actually involved in the process, did they ever say anything about using a peep stone in a hat or a, or a seer stone? Um, now, the interpreters, they said, well, maybe the interpreters are considered to be seer stones, and that's maybe a possibility because they talk about the interpreters being, you know, a, you know that a seer is a person who has these interpreters. It also talks just re, just really uh, oh let me let me finish off here with the with the starters they basically in this book they basically show the historical documentation that shows that the entire idea that the Book of Mormon was 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 done using a a, a peep stone in the setting the bottom of a hat and Joseph Smith would stick his face in it and and read off the peep stone all of that comes from basically either rabid anti Mormons 
or disaffected Mormons long after they was involved. So that's the Emma and, uh, and and David Whitmer and so forth. Later on, 40 years after the fact, they had interviews and they said, well, yeah, you know, Joseph Smith uses peepstone in a hat. But the but the earliest the earliest people claiming that was from a book called Mormonism Unveiled, which is a rabid anti-Mormon book that was published back in Joseph Smith's day. And they said Joseph Smith uses peepstone in a hat. When Emma said that, she was actually, by that time, her son, Joseph Smith III, was now the, the quote-unquote prophet for the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ, basically. And then David Whitmer had long since apostatized, and he was basically saying that Joseph Smith was a false prophet at the same time he said, and oh, by the way, Joseph Smith used these, uh, the stone and a hat thing. And that whole narrative has come down through historians who want to change the church's um, history. Well, as, as we were, as I was growing up, I'm old enough, you know, and so forth. But I, and I've talked to people who are older than I. I said when you were when you were taught how the translation process happened, what were you taught? And without question, they say it was done to the gift and power of God using the the interpreters, basically the Urim and Thummim. Not once was it ever mentioned to me as a as a young man going through seminary and institute and so forth that this was this rock in the hat theory. That's all very new. It's a new progressive history that is being foisted upon the church, and it's all coming from anti-Mormon sources that are being used as the foundations for that understanding. In fact, there's, there's a new book that just literally came out about a week or so ago by the Stoddards. It's called Faith Crisis, We Were Not Betrayed. A lot of people have major concerns about the, uh, about the translation process because if it came through the interpreters that God prepared, then why did Joseph Smith not use the instrument that God made specifically for the purpose of translating from this to this? Yeah, the instrument that's been used in the scriptures of the past and in the and in the present yeah. and in church history. And so, yeah, I agree. Yeah, this book is kind of a bombshell book. I, I, I yeah. got to say oh, because uh, because the uh, the information in here shows that uh, things like the Hoffman papers, which were all forgeries, were accepted by church historians who wanted to change the history. Actually, uh, a couple of them actually felt that they had been called by God to change the original history of the church to this new, this new narrative. That Joseph Smith was a, was a, a treasure seeker. He was a money digger. His family were, were dysfunctional. And, and, and really tearing down the character of Joseph Smith and his family I'm not sure exactly why, except to make us feel like, well, we, he, he's, he's more accessible to us because he's kind of got all these foibles just like we do. But the problem is, is that the historical information in it is not actually accurate. And there were historians who deliberately were attempting to change the history, and they not just attempted to, they have. Yeah. In many cases, even in in modern publications well, you know, these things have been now throughout the church yeah it's really hard because today we're in a time in which there's so much um concern about uh um you know feelings and and uh being able to tell people to you know you know when christ christ loved his enemies but he didn't he didn't accept what they did he didn't he didn't say oh you're right you know, I, I was just, I don't want to, I don't want to make you feel bad or anything. 
You know, yeah, he's, yeah. he loved them, but then he was like, but I'm not changing my gospel for you. And and I think that what, that's what we are seeing over the last 200 years in the church is we're seeing some harsh times that Joseph Smith had to go through. Yeah. And now today we have this soft version, I think, of what, of what we remember in the past or some harsh moments yeah. that we're now looking at and saying, well, wh- how, why would, why did Joseph Smith do that? And why did, you know, why did Emma act that way? And why did Brigham Young do this? And, and, you know, yeah. didn't, you just can't, you can't use the same uh, mentality that Brigham Young had in today because they were living like pioneers and, uh, or they were living like getting kicked out of the country. You know, mm-hmm. Joseph Smith, you know, or the Mormons were kicked out of the United States. Yeah. Let's let's be clear about that. You know, if there's any group of people that need reparations, it would be Mormons. <laughs> but we don't ask for them. We don't care about. It. We forgive and we forget and we move, so we'll on. move on. That's right. But but you know, if we were to get kicked out again today, you know, it would be an interesting situation. But, uh, <laughs> you know, for sure. Yes. Where are we gonna go? <laughs> and so, uh, but I just think that uh, I just think that there, yeah, there have been these people that have snuck in. I don't know who they are. I, I need to do the search myself, and I'm very fast. I can, I can I mean, tell you quite a lot about it. Yeah, I, I, I can't I, wait. I, I just but, got uh, through reading this book uh, this morning, although I had already read about 90% of it prior to that because they actually gave an endorsement on the book. Yeah. Well, you know, that <laughs> well, actually... I finished reading it because they had some editing that was... That actually before. leads us to uh, the yes. next topic. You know, mm-hmm. maybe maybe this is a good bridge to, yes. to chapter 10 of Mosiah. Yep. And so... So we move on over there. Yeah, we'll zip on over to ten of Mosiah, and we know that this is after Laman dies, the king King Laman, and and then the uh, fighting ensues with the Lamanites, and uh, and one of the one of the fascinating things, and I marked it up like crazy in my book because I really wanted people, you know, when you're talking about using the Book of Mormon in our day, this is a chapter ten of Mosiah is a perfect example, especially when you get into verse twelve. Where it, where of chapter 10. Of chapter 10, yeah. where it says they were a wild and ferocious and bloodthirsty people believing in the tradition of their fathers, which is this, quote, believing that they were driven out of the land of Jerusalem because of the iniquities of their fathers, and that they were wronged in the wilderness by their brethren, and that they were also wronged while crossing the sea. That's, that's them cursing Nephi and Lehi and the things that they did, changing history, shifting it, saying they were wrong and saying, you know, can you just imagine the political correctness of these guys sitting there talking about Nephi and Lehi? They're talking to them like they're talking about Columbus or they're talking about our 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 founding fathers of the United States, how they're all racist, you know, and they were all bad for doing this and bad for doing that. And and so that same history shifting is going on was going on here, which is also going on even right in our own little time frame in the church, where now we're taking yeah. Joseph Smith and making it look like he was a money grubbing, you know, jerk. Cultist. I guess cult, yeah. cult, cult, cult cultist, guy. you know. Yeah. And so and so I think it's it's amazing yeah. that that you're seeing that right here in the scriptures that they were trying to change their own history, and you have yeah. to do that. You have to change history in order to be the leader of your nation. How how important is history, folks? I mean, we got. We, I want to just talk about this for just a couple seconds because, you know, for me as, as a kid growing up, who cared about history? What is it's, it's old stuff? You know, yeah, we, I just now. care about what's in the future. Yeah, you know, what's that's, that's what there. But look at how critical a true history is. I mean, 
Lehi actually sent his boys back and put their lives at risk so they could go back and get the brass plates. Why? Because he wanted to have the true history. So it didn't get messed up over the course of time by orally, you know, uh, passing it down and down and down, playing telephone, (laughs) you know. So that was important. You have this situation where the where the Lamanites they, they feel like they were wronged, and and so forth, and yep. and that was that was their interpretation of their history. Yeah, that they were wronged. Yeah, that's they were dragged to America. They didn't want to come. They didn't want to be here. But nobody forced them on the boat. As yeah, far as we know. exactly. As <laughs> far know? as we yeah, exactly. As on far the as ship. we know. Yeah, and then and then you also have. The Lamanites, towards the end of the book, when they says, you know, that we have to hide up our history because anything that isn't hidden up, the Lamanites are absolutely determined to destroy our history. Yeah. This tells you how critical it is that the history is done right. And this is why this is so important. Brothers and sisters, I, 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 I hate to re- report about this, but this book basically talks about how there were a number of at least a couple of uh, of actual church historians who literally did not have a testimony of the gospel, did not believe that Jesus Christ and God the Father actually appeared to Joseph Smith, didn't believe in the creation of the earth, didn't believe in, you know, actually believed in evolution, that we came from lower life forms and so forth. Um, and they were holding sway, um, actually got into a, a huge debate going on, well, not really debate, but basically it was almost like an internal war within the church between Joseph Fielding Smith, uh, Ezra Taft Benson, and, and uh, you know Elder McConkie and so forth, who were considered the traditionalists. And then there was this new, this new group of intellectuals that were kind of uh, coming up through the ranks um, that, uh, that basically took these positions. And then one of them, Leonard Arrington, actually got himself fired from, from the church history department, went down to BYU and started instead to indoctrinate the kids and the students at BYU to raise them up to have these same progressive, very liberal, socialist, in many cases, ideas. So things like evolution and socialism and all these other, all these other ideas were coming from these church historians. And they literally have been changing the history from what the prophets and the scriptures have talked about to this new progressive, they actually even called it the New Mormon History. Yeah, and they actually had secret meetings called about the sweat. This they called them the swearing swearing elders, and all kinds of stuff. It's like holy cow, and all this just literally came out last year when the uh, when the information about uh, Leonard Arrington, he had his journals and diaries and his all of his notes and so forth that were published, and all of this now has come out. Uh, just in the last year, and my wow. goodness, he and he—he's probably one of the most, if not the most, influential person in church history in the last, you know, fifty years. And he probably believed in the Central American model of the Book of Mormon too. Well, that, that, it runs in that same circle. <laughs> Basically, the same intellectuals who believe—no, they—they no. they really do. In fact, although he actually believed that the Book of Mormon wasn't even a history, yeah, it was an inspired fiction. Interesting. Wow. That's going in a whole nother direction. That is going in a whole different direction. So yeah, there's some crazy stuff going on there. But the history, brothers and sisters, the history is critical. And it's critical that we get it right. That's right. And we need to have people who are true to the prophets and the scriptures and not as much worried about the philosophies of men and what their 
reputations in academia are going to be if they actually come out and say, you know, well, yes, Joseph Smith actually did see God the Father and Jesus Christ. Yes, the creation of the earth did happen like the three accounts in our scriptures talk about and also in our temple ceremonies. Yes, there was a Noah's flood and it wasn't just a myth. Yes, Moses actually did write the first five books of Moses and Joseph Smith reiterated that, and also in, in, in Moses and Abraham actually confirmed that Moses was the one who wrote those things. And, All those things yeah. are under attack, brothers and sisters. Even within the church, there are intellectuals um, who are, in, 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 even in places like Book of Mormon Central and, uh, and, and the Interpreter and Fair Mormon, who are supposed to be defending the church, are literally defending the philosophies of men and trying to apply it to the church. And they're moving the church in this other direction than what the prophets and the apostles have been saying for years. Yeah. Well, that's I hate why, to put it that way, but that's Yeah, and that's why happened. it's so important to uh, also keep your history. Right now, we're in a period of of coronavirus. And, uh, and th- this is distancing. Yeah, right? we're <laughs> distancing. You can see the distancing going we'll on here. the distance right there. And, uh, now. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I think that it's very important. That's why it's very important, at least for right now, yeah. to for everybody to actually write their own history that they remember. They remember what did the prophet say? What yes. did, what, what happened? What, you know, we, we received... Uh, revelation about being more homeward bound in our church. And then what do we have to do? Stay at home and have church. And so these are some memories. These are some events that you want to keep and pass on. So they are not forgotten in the future with your children and your children's children, because keeping that history, we see here just literally a few generations and they've already changed the the history. We see it here in church history that, that, uh, um, that the stories get changed and shifted to be able to fit a model uh, that people have. And, and, and there are just those that do not like the church and, uh, and, and we have to be able to, uh, Always win the war of information to make sure that the truth is always there. There'll always be the false news, you know, but then the spirit should be able to confirm to you that what you're reading yeah. and hearing is true between the history that you keep. Right. So it's so important that we all do that. Right. And if, you, if you're reading histories that are uh, basically some way challenging the character of Joseph Smith, and his prophetic mission as the uh, as the as the prophet of this dispensation, the leader of this dispensation, um, you don't find you know the prophets of the church undermining the character of Joseph Smith. Yeah. Um, but we but we see this actually going on as people say that Joseph Smith was a you know money digger and and all these other things, and it's just sad because some of the top historians that that should know better actually. When the, when the Mark Hoffman fakes and forgeries started coming out, they just absolutely went nuts. They said, oh, this is manna from heaven because we've been trying to use these anti-Mormon sources to attack the character of Joseph Smith, but we didn't have any sources from within the church. And then when Hoffman's documents and his forgeries started coming out, it gave them ammunition to back up their idea that Joseph Smith was this flawed individual and so, yeah, and right. so they they. In fact, it's interesting because in the in this book they actually talk about how the um, that the historians were the last ones 
to finally admit that Hoffman's stuff was fakes and forgeries. In fact, they were the ones who had authenticated, in many cases, these these forgeries that Hoffman was doing. They said, oh yeah, this is absolutely you know an authentic document. It's the real McCoy. It's the real deal. And it had these weird things like a white salamander in the first vision. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's crazy. They're like, what the stuff. heck is that? Yeah. But the historians were totally buying it because it felt their narrative of this new Mormon history that attacked the character of Joseph Smith. Later on, when it was found that they were complete forgeries, um, like I said, the last ones who finally admitted that they were fakes were the historians. Yeah, that's a tough deal. <laughs> that's tough. Very tough deal. Well, that last couple things here. The uh, basically, um, in, the, in the, going back to uh, chapter nine here. Oh, yeah. This is the flashback to 200 BC. They pick up the record of Zenith. This is this is how they got down there to the land of Lehi Nephi in yeah. the first so place. Now you shift from eight to nine. You're going back in time, yep. and you're getting a different history in a different part of the of yeah. the land. And he basically tells them again that they go up from the land of Zarahemla to the land of uh, to this, uh, Lehi Nephi, and so forth. And then uh, now, interestingly, on, uh, there's a couple other things though that that may deal with geography stuff. And I know you're going to love this here because you, you've done episodes and things about this. But this is uh, chapter uh, nine, verse nine. It says, and we began to till the ground, yea, even all manner of seeds, seeds of corn. And wheat and barley and neas and sheem and seeds of all manner of fruits, and we did begin to multiply and prosper in the land. So corn, wheat, barley, neas, sheem, and fruits. Now we have no really idea what neas are or sheem. Yeah, they're up there with curlum and cummums. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, but we do know what corn, wheat, and barley. Is. That's right. Yeah. And interestingly enough. Um, we we had um, you know Amberly Nelson and Kay Fairchild just did a, a wonderful presentation about the plants and animals in the Book of Mormon. Every one of those those uh, plants that are just mentioned right there are indigenous to North America, but corn is the only one that's actually found in Central America. Wheat and barley were were not down there in the in the time frames of the Book of Mormon. So that's another interesting aspect yeah. of it. And then there's also, um, let's see, they, uh, let's see they, they, they talked about the Lamites being a lazy and an idolatrous people in verse 12. Therefore, they were desirous to bring us into bondage that they might glut themselves. And I wanted just, just to have a little discussion here about this, and then we're going to finish it up with the swords and scimitars and stuff. Okay. But basically, this idea of how do you bring a people into bondage? You make them lazy. Well, interestingly well, enough, a, that's what that's the ultimate goal. Yeah, yeah. Get to, yeah. Well, what, well, the the people who want to put people into bondage, they don't want to have to work hard because working, let's face it, it stinks. Okay, yeah. I mean, working every day hard. I mean, gosh, wouldn't you rather just be hanging out on a beach someplace or, or just relaxing in in the you know, you know what in I your do. place? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, how do you get a a, a, a people to get into bondage. And interestingly enough, the Book of Mormon gives us a great example right here. He says that uh, when, when, when Zenith and his people came into the land, they found the Lamanites were already there. And they had to make a deal with the Lamanites. And this is what he said about the king of the Lamanites. He said that, um, let's see, he, he goes, uh, 
Uh, verse 11, therefore it came to pass that after we had dwelt in the land for the space of 12 years that the king Laman began to grow uneasy, lest by any means my people should wax strong in the land. But uh, but he actually, um, in verse 5, he says that, and it came to pass that I went again with four of my men into the city, into the king, that I might know the disposition of the king, that I might know if I might go with in, in with my people and possess the land in peace. And I went into the king. He covenanted with me that I might possess the land of Lehi-Nephi and the land of Shilom. So he got two lands. And he also commanded his people should depart out of the land so that they might have it. He's given them free land. Free stuff. Yeah. So he's going to give them free stuff, and they get to set it all up. They're going to use this free land, basically. Okay, so you are going to – I just finished talking about the <laughs> getting truth. And and uh, and then we just now you see, you're like okay let's talk about the last thing which is chapter nine and getting into a little more uh, where you start diving into verse five that's where you where you left off where we were talking yeah. about um, oh yeah, land. So, yeah okay yeah so sorry I didn't mean to throw you off no, on no, that no but problem figure that's okay. a good place to start okay so one of the things I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about and just kind of have a little bit of discussion about is how do you Go about enslaving a people. This is a this is a beautiful example here from the Book of Mormon of of, of how they went about doing this. Yeah. Here we have Zenith. He comes down into this land of Lehi Nephi. They find the Lamanites are there. He goes and talks to the king of the Lamanites. The king of the Lamanites goes, you know what? Oh, I'll I tell you what, I'll just give you some land. In fact, I'll kick all my people out so you can have this land all to yourself. That's right. It's free stuff, right? I'm going to give you free stuff. So he basically says that, uh, he says in verse uh, 5, he says, It came to pass that I went again with four of my men to the city and to the king, that I might know the disposition of the king, that I might know if I might go with my people and possess the land in peace. I went into the king, and he covenanted, made a covenant with me, that I might possess the land of Lehi Nephi and the land of Shilom. So he got basically he got two lands. So that's that's and the land of Shilom is just north of there. That's right. For the price of none. And he also commanded that his people should basically get out of the land so we can have it by ourselves. And he says, and then we started to build buildings and to repair the walls of the city that was originally there with, with Nephi and and those after him. And they and they do all this stuff, and they find these you know, the, all the they talk about the plants and so forth there. But this is verse 10. This is an interesting thing. Why did the king of the Lamanites give him free land? Well, it tells us right here, now it was the cunning and the craftiness of King Laman to bring my people into bondage. Yeah. Isn't it interesting? Free stuff. Everybody thinks, well, that, well gosh, well, that's, that, that's a good deal. Free stuff. And, 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 and we get all this free, everything's free. Oh, but there's, but there's a price to pay. Yeah, and in this particular case, the price was that he that he yielded up the land that we might possess it. Therefore, it came to pass that we dwelt in the land for the space of twelve years, and he began to grow uneasy because um, the people were getting really really powerful there. And this is this is one of the keys: the people who want to put other people in bondage usually want to do that because they don't want to work. Yeah, it's a lot of work to work. Yeah. <laughs> so, and they don't want to do it. So they said that they were, that the reason why is that because the Lamanites were lazy and idolatrous people, therefore they were desirous to bring us into bondage that they might glut themselves with the labors of our hands. 
and they might feast themselves upon the flocks of our fields. Uh, therefore, it came to pass that he began to stir up his people, and then they, uh, they and they were paying a, a huge tax, um, which they started to tax the people. And isn't that interesting? Uh, and, and I and I just put it in, in our day. You know, so many times that's the that's the draw of socialist and uh, and communist ideas. Basically, is the idea of free stuff and security. Yeah. But uh, this this old this old adage is no such thing as a free lunch really comes <laughs> comes into play here because yeah they got free land but they also had to start paying the taxes and when they submitted themselves to the taxes of King Laman then he could adjust those taxes up or down as he wanted. Yeah. Well, you know what's amazing is is how bringing people into bondage socially like that, you know, when you when you get a lot of people in one area, you know, and today in the day of COVID, we, you know, we have that discussion where we know that places where it's heavily populated are going to have a lot of people uh, sick and ill. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and whereas you're, you go out to, you know, North Dakota or something and you're not going to get near as many uh, because they're separated. And, and, and it's important for people to not always be in a large group together because then it requires less people to have to do as much. It requires, you know, you get the few that actually will bring in the food and everybody else simply pushes a button and gets their food and they don't know where that food comes from. And so thus you start to become lazy. And, uh, and so laziness, how do you, how do you show, a, like imagine a Hollywood movie. <laughs> T- tell me a Hollywood movie where a bet, where the bad guy enslaved people with laziness and and uh and promises and then turned around and taxed taxed half of them them. and 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 made it fine most of the time when you think of a bad guy in a hollywood movie you think of somebody who just comes with men with guns and tells everybody to stand against the wall and (laughs) and uh give me all your money and do what i say or i'm going to kill you and then they're in bondage they think that's the way it's done and and but you, but because the lazy way is attractive, it's hard to sh- to show that in two hours time, which is how you know when people think in our time, it's hard for us to see that uh, you know there'll be politicians or there'll be people who are pundits or whatever that push for oh it's for the people you're you are so harmful by not giving somebody free stuff how dare you. You know, it's a shaming aspect of not being able to help people when when serving and helping people and giving people stuff should be something that's not uh, forced upon us, but it's done by gifting, which is the way the Lord tells us to do it, the way the Savior does. In this case, who knows what kind of words Layman, King Layman used to be able to say, this is for you. I'm doing this for you. Come on, guys. Let's go and help. We're these brothers. People. We're brothers, and I'm here <laughs> to help you, and I love you. And and yeah. and if somebody spoke up, somebody had to be in his kingdom spoke up and said, "Hey, uh, layman, uh, I don't think that's really good. Uh, be quiet, you dissenter, you." And and you know, <laughs> and just went on with it. You know, I mean, can you imagine yeah. if somebody were to have done that to dissent against King Layman? Uh, in 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 doing this because that would be considered bad, but at the time looked really good, 
look like, well, we're here to get help. And when realize when really what we're doing is we're losing the gospel of work, you know, because the gospel well, of what work. Was the, is, what was the one of the commandments from Adam and Eve when they were, you know, uh, removed from the Garden of Eden? He says, yeah. from now on, by the sweat of thy brow, you're working, baby. Will you eat bread? That's right. You know, so, so this idea of of making somebody else work for your livelihood is literally going against one of the very first commandments, if you will, of the Lord to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That's right. We should give an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, basically, and that's been taught throughout the church for for a long, long time. And that doesn't mean somebody doesn't get lucky and. Sure. And does something to where they do make a lot for very little work, yeah. but then they turn around, they become industrious, and and yeah. and they give at their you know at, at their giving at their level of what they right. they've between them and the Lord, and it's not for us to say. Not everybody can be subsistence farmers. Let's put it that way. Exactly, <laughs> you know, that's right. We can use our brain and use uh, you know mechanisms and, and and technology and so forth, and and so many of us don't really do work like, yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, what we do, yeah. I mean, back in the 1800s, I mean, we basically sit and sit in a chair, comfortable chair, and look at a screen <laughs> for most of the day. Yeah. That's not really hard work. Yeah. But it is mental work, and it is actually creating and 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 uh, and, and making making things basically. Yeah. You know? Your your ha- what your habit yeah. of your day is, yeah, uh, according to the time that you live in, is yeah. is is what you consider as work as proper days work. Yeah. Know, for an honest day's pay. Yeah, and anyway, so this 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 is a very interesting thing. This is actually from uh, this is from the book uh, Faith Crisis, and uh, this is on page uh, what is it one eighty four and one eighty five and part of one eighty six. But basically, um, there just the Ezra Taft Benson, um, he wrote about some very specific individuals, and uh, this is from uh, October uh, General Conference nineteen seventy. President Ezra Taft Benson identified uh, five specific antichrists. That he talked about in our day, and he said, uh, uh, "Let's see." So he says, "As a watchman over on the tower, I feel to warn you that one of the chief means of misleading our youth and destroying the family units is our educational institutions." Says President Joseph F. Smith referred to false educated uh, educational ideas as one of the three threatening dangers among our members of the church. There is more than one reason why the church is advising our youth to attend colleges close to their homes where institutions of religions are available. It gives the parents the opportunity to stay close to their children, and if they have become alert and informed, as President McKay admonished us last year, these parents' parents can help expose some of the deceptions of men like, and he specifically names them out, Sigmund Freud, Charles Darwin, John Dewey, Karl Marx, John Keynes, and others. Today, there are much worse things that can happen to a child than not getting a college education. In fact, some of the worst things have happened to our children while attending colleges led by administrators who wink at subversion and amorality, unquote. So these are the, these are the five antichrists that President uh, uh, Benson basically uh, identified. And then um, this is an interesting uh, quote here. This is actually... Um, this is John Maynard Keys, Keynes, I should say, a member of the Liberal Party in the UK. And basically, this is, um, uh, let me see, the, the, let's see. He said, anyway, it says this, it, it may well be said that the philosophy of Keynes brought to the center of the world's thinking, it could be summed up with the maxim, the government has all the answers. 
Keynes thought he had proved that government intervention was more would move the economy. Government guarantees would stabilize the banks. Government protection would satisfy the labor unions. Government regulation would stabilize transportation, travel, media, housing, mortgages, pension funds, and retirement plans, and a thousand other things to which the government is now called upon to produce stability. Keynesian economics preaches the doctrine that the government is the final resource. It can answer every problem. It can create something out of nothing, namely prosperity. What can this mean except that the government is God? Unquote. Yeah. When we look to the government to be our savior, which in this time of the coronavirus is basically, I mean, how many people are, are seriously looking to the government to, to, to fix the problems? Yeah. When they were the ones that created the problems in the first place in many aspects. Yeah, the aspect of being able to distribute the money and the way people survive and mm-hmm. and yeah and it's because everybody people don't realize this everybody has a natural right to look to something as their god or as their leader or as their something mm-hmm. to look towards everybody does and when you eliminate when you peel away god from the from the equation you have to look to something and that's where government becomes the next best thing. And so when, when, when God no longer becomes your God, then government becomes your God, sadly. Yeah. That's because where else do you go? And what happens you know? when governments become people's gods, basically? They usually ends up bad. It always ends up, <laughs> always ends up bad. This I mean, is, we, don't, we all don't have, and... a, we don't have a King Benjamin very often. You know, as yeah. your king, and 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 that just doesn't always happen. And you know, I think we watch too many movies to tell us otherwise. So yep. you need to study history and and understand where people go because it's the history that will help you understand that you can't uh, let government rule your life. So, and if you do, basically, just like King Laban, eventually they will tax you and tax you and tax you until it's grievous to be born. Yeah, and then uh, and then and the other thing is is that the Nephites. It's interesting also in this in this area. They said that the uh, when when they finally found the people of Zenith, basically had Zenith and then King Noah and then his son Limhi. By the time they got down to King Limhi, things were pretty bad. And Limhi actually told the people who had just come down and found them down there in Lehi Nephi. He said, "You know what? Let us come up back to Zarahemla, and we'll be your slaves." Because it's better for us to be slaves to the Nephites than it is to be paying tribute to the Lamanites. Because we don't want to support evil. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing that they would say that. That's, ama- that's yeah. so true. But you look, but you would try to apply that to our day and our time, and holy smokes. I mean, that's, <laughs> you know. That's, I mean, do, when, when we it's go not to good. Certain, it's just that it's, it's, yeah. it's, I agree with what they, you know, it's amazing that they would even say that. Yeah, because that we're kind of living that, you know, we're kind of yeah. I mean, people, that, that. that's why people need to be careful about even what the things that they buy, because with your dollars, you literally are supporting either good or bad. Yeah. So try to make sure that your money is going to places that are going to good people and 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 uh, good causes, because otherwise, you're literally contributing to the destruction of your civilization. Yeah. 
All right, so last couple of things here. Um, on verse on, on page one sixty in the annotated Book of Mormon, it talks about the, uh, the the seeds and the corn and, and barley and wheat and why that's important. And it talks about the ripening of the barley and the law of Moses, which is so cool. And we've talked about it in some other places and so forth. We don't have time to go into that today. We also it talks about here they had cloth of every kind. Um, in uh, this is chapter ten, verse five, and I did cause that the women should spin and toil and work. Isn't that interesting? What? What? They made even the women working? <laughs> no, just kidding. The women constantly work. Okay, so yeah. I work all manner of fine linen, yea, and cloth of every kind, that we might clothe our nakedness, and thus we did prosper in the land. They equated this working and having things and being independent as being uh, prospering. And it's interesting because when, when Brigham Young... Uh, first came out here to Salt Lake, one of the first things they did was try to set up some industry so we wouldn't be dependent upon outside sources to, you know, for our incomes. Yeah. And if you look at what's happened between the United States, for example, and China, we've outsourced so much of our production that we don't even make our own vaccines anymore. <laughs> you know, so many of the things that we do are made, made outside of the United States and we are, and as a, as a, as a people, I think that there is a real danger to this as well. In the last days, there's actually prophecy that talks about the laborer in Zion will labor for Zion or they'll perish. That could be really interesting when it comes down to things like the mark of the beast and and other things that not being able to buy and sell unless you have the mark and that kind of stuff. That's all kind of things that uh, that could be things that uh, that those who refuse to take that mark are going to have to do business among each other because the rest of the world is going to be taking the mark. Yeah, that's right. So they better be ready to do business just among ourselves kind of thing. And uh, that's another little interesting side note. <laughs> there, but yeah. but uh, cheer up there's so much in the Book of Mormon here that just deals with all this stuff. And the last, yeah. very last thing here is it talks about um, – they had swords, and, and uh, let's see, this is in verse 16 of chapter 9. Um, yeah, the bows. Says, and and it came to pass that I did arm them with bows and with arrows and with swords and scimitars and clubs and slings and all manner of weapons, which we can invent. And I did go forth uh, against Lamanites to battle. So these are all things that they made. If they made... Bows and arrows, well, bows are not going to last for very long, but arrowheads will, yeah. and we find those literally everywhere. Yeah, we talked in about the heartland of America. That they were, yeah. yeah, they're in mass numbers because they're rock. Basically. Yeah, and not just around Hilkamora, but literally everywhere throughout the entire Midwestern part of the United States, there's just been millions upon millions of these things have been found, and they're just they're just everywhere. Yeah. Um, let's see, and uh, swords and scimitars. Now, the difference between a sword and a scimitar: sword is basically more or less a relatively straight blade. A scimitar is kind of a, of a uh, an arched blade, if you want to call it that. And there's examples of actual artifacts of what would be considered swords and scimitars on page 162 that have actually been found in the heartland of America. Yeah, we've never had it before. <laughs> you know, yeah. in the in the history of the church, there's never been any swords or scimitars ever found in Central America. But yet, here's some, and there's and there's there's dozens of examples of it. That's that's awesome. All right, so uh, we need to we need to finish up here. 
Kels, yes, thank sir. you so much for oh. coming and being a part of this uh, this podcast. I hope you're enjoying these podcasts. It's been uh, we, we've had to take a kind of a sabbatical for a couple of weeks while we were getting the uh, the big conference done. We want to thank uh, Mike and Nancy uh, James for all their efforts in getting that getting the, the conference done. By the way, if you haven't um, uh, seen the uh, the virtual expo, now we have over a hundred. I think there's just over a hundred presentations. About an hour long each. Those a hundred hours of information that you can uh, you can check out on the website. It's Book of Mormon Evidence Streaming, and come follow me twenty twenty. There's there's two places you can you can access those things if you're a if you are a subscriber or if you uh, um, were were going to attend the conference and it became a virtual conference because of the COVID nineteen pandemic here. Um, so we want to encourage you if you're if you're watching this. There is so much great information, and uh, and if you go on the streaming site, you're going to see Kells and uh, actually the Hidden in the Heartman series right. is uh, is there. You can watch it there, and uh, you can check that out. Amazing stuff, made for TV. This is professional grade. I mean, you know, this is really nice, well done. Uh, these almost like a docudrama, really, kind of how these. Yeah, we pattern after the History Channel. Is what we pattern. Yes, after. yeah, and they're just fantastic. Oh. So, so uh, just great stuff there. So I want to encourage you to go there. The main website, again, is bookofmormonevidence.org. That's where you can get the, that's the kind of the portal to all of the other uh, information. Um, brothers and sisters, we're hoping that you are enjoying these, uh, these podcasts and that you're learning. The idea is, is that we, we, we don't want to necessarily take what's going on in the lesson already. Hopefully you're already doing that. We're trying to take the information there and giving you uh, some information that gives you a more in-depth understanding and a deeper appreciation of the, of the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith, and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week uh, where we have some amazing uh, additional information here in Mosiah. And uh, thank you. Thanks again, Kels. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Book of Mormon Evidence podcast. If you like this Come Follow Me supplemental study, click the like button and share it with your friends. Be sure to go to bookofmormonevidence.org, which is a hub with all the links that you would like to the podcasts, to upcoming events, the store, 200 plus answers about the Book of Mormon, as well as links to our streaming site, which now has over 100 new videos from our virtual expo. If you want to see the expo, go to comefollowme2020.org. And you can also see them on the streaming site, bookofmormonevidencestreaming.com.